0: The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Equal Play. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome in. On this show, we are focused on highlighting the brightest women in sports, and this week it's a true privilege to bring you a conversation with two-time Olympic gold medalist, three-time WNBA champion, two-time NCAA champion, and VP of Basketball Operations and Team Development with the New Orleans Pelicans, Swin Cash. We got into everything from her days getting recruited by UConn in high school to her time with the Chicago Sky and obviously so much more. So stay tuned for that conversation because up first, you know, we kick things off with hot headlines. First things first, the NWSL draft was Wednesday and after Katarina Macario announced she would be signing a two and a half year deal with powerhouse Lyon, Emily Fox was taken with the number one selection by Racing Louisville, followed by Trinity Rodman, who was selected by the Washington Spirit with the number two pick, and Brianna Pinto, who was taken third overall by Sky Blue FC. After trading down to the number seven pick, the Chicago Red Star selected Stanford forward, Madison Haley. Chicago also selected Santa Clara forward, Kelsey Turnbow at number 18, Washington State defender, Brianna Alger at number 25, Mississippi forward and midfielder Channing Foster at number 32, and Virginia forward and Naperville native Alyssa Gorzak with their last pick of the draft at number 35. Up next, we have some baseball news. The Chicago White Sox announced the signing of former athletics closer Liam Hendricks, and with the move, their bullpen jumps to number two ranking according to fan graphs coming in behind the Yankees. Hendricks signed a four-year, $54 million deal, which was first reported Monday and includes a $1 million signing bonus. Hendricks owns the lowest ERA in the majors since 2019, and Rick Hahn had this to say about the new White Sox closer. With the acquisition of Liam, we are adding another premium talent to our core group of players. Liam is someone of outstanding character and makeup who will be an asset both on the field and in the clubhouse, end quote. In Illinois high school sports news, the Illinois Department of Public Health website updated the status of high school sports on Friday, posting that low-risk sports can play conference and interregion games. Low-risk sports include boys and girls bowling, cheerleading, dance, girls gymnastics and boys swimming and diving and badminton the site says medium risk sports which includes soccer volleyball and water polo can have practices but not play games higher risk sports which includes basketball football hockey lacrosse and wrestling can hold no contact practices for more on this evolving story, make sure to follow the greatest high school sports editor in Chicago, Michael O'Brien, on Twitter. He has all the information for you. And also check out his work at the suntimes.com highschoolsports. Last up, the U.S. Women's National Team is currently at camp in Orlando in preparation for two matches against Columbia on January 18th and the 22nd. Brazilian-born Stanford star Katarina Macario was approved by FIFA to represent the U.S. Women's National Team, making her available for selection for the team's two upcoming matches and beyond. Macario had this to say about the news that was announced on Wednesday. Quote, I want to thank everyone at U.S. Soccer, past and present, for the opportunity, and I sincerely appreciate the literal years of work that went into getting this done. Now that I'm approved to play, it's up to me to show the coaches I deserve to be on rosters and get playing time. Nothing is guaranteed and everything needs to be earned. So it's up to me to get my fitness to the level needed and keep learning every day. Just to be in the position as a dream come true and I'll never take any of it for granted. End quote. That's all the news I have for you. Now, here is my conversation with the legendary, and OG in the game as some of the youngsters call her, Swin Cash. I am so thrilled to welcome in VP of Basketball Operations for the New Orleans Pelicans, three-time WNBA champion, two-time Olympic gold medalist, five-time WNBA all-star, two-time NCAA champion, Swing Cash. That is a mouthful. Do you ever get tired of hearing all of these accomplishments put together like that?
0: Um, it, it is a mouthful, but it's a blessing. Um, Sometimes you forget all the things that you've done. So definitely appreciate it, Annie. Thank you. I'm happy to join you today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Swin. We appreciate your time here on Equal Play. Getting right into things. Growing up in, you got to tell me how to correctly pronounce McKeesport. <laughs> is that how you say it? Yep, McKeesport, PA. <laughs> yes, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. Can you share how you first? got interested in the sport of basketball. I read that the first sport you played was baseball. So uh, share the story with me of how you transitioned into basketball and it obviously changed your life forever. Yeah, so I
0: come from a really big family and sports is kind of our thing growing up. my aunts and uncles played my mom played my dad played um and it wasn't just one sport my mom was a believer that it's important to expose kids to multiple sports um and it's not like today's day and age where people see their kid at five and they're like oh my goodness like he's the next brandon ingram uh, <laughs> for my mom everything was really about the experience and learning uh, from each sport and so what uh, she wanted me to do first. And I, I fell in love with baseball because my, my guy cousins were playing baseball. And then, you know, basketball was something we did around the neighborhood. And when you don't have a hoop, you know, back in our day, um, and I can say that I'm a little bit seasoned. I'm not old, but I'm seasoned, Annie. <laughs> Um, what we used to do is you would cut out the crate, like a milk carton crate, the bottom yeah. of it, and you can hang tree and you can play like where it's visual. Like if you don't have a court, your parents could see you playing. And so we used to do things like that. And that's kind of how I fell in love with the game.
1: And did you naturally right away have, I mean, obviously the talent we all know you to have or did it, when did you really start to know and understand that you had a true future in in the game of basketball?
0: Yeah, I would say I didn't really start noticing until maybe I feel like Seventh and eighth grade kind of hit me where it was like, oh, I'm I'm pretty cool at this. But by ninth grade, when I started getting, um, you know, letters from all these major colleges, it was kind of eye opening. I remember my mom sitting down having a conversation with me in ninth grade. Well, after eighth grade, going getting ready to go into ninth grade. And she said, look, she said, you know, we can't afford to pay for college. But everything that I'm being told, like you have a real opportunity with a lot of these schools looking at you to get a scholarship. So I know I've never wanted you to focus on one sport before, but let's put a strategy together. Like what does high school look like for you and what are your goals? And that's when I decided to stop playing in the orchestra, stop, you know, with the drama team, all those different things and just focus on basketball, focus on my academics and um, that you know, was the driving force behind it.
1: transitioning to your college career. You were recruited by UConn and obviously played there, accomplished so much there, but the UConn back then wasn't the UConn that we know today. So when you were being recruited to play there, what sold you on playing there? And also looking back, are you shocked at all that this has grown to become the iconic program it is today?
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's really funny because as, you know, Sue and Tamika and Asia and I, we talk about, you know, telling our story and, you know, working on potentially this documentary to come um, from our time. I think it, it, it expresses, we wanted to express what UConn was back then, mm-hmm. the decisions that we made and why we made those decisions. And I think a lot of that was based off of I mean, Tennessee was such a powerhouse at the time, and Pat Summit was Pat Summit. Right, um, and I remember us thinking about going and, and going to this school. And even though UConn had had a national championship, it was really trying to do something special. And that was the first time, like after all the Meeks had went to. Uh, Tennessee, where it was like, let's just come together. And we had known each other through playing AAU. So Tamika and I were really close because we played together. Um, And then obviously meeting Asia, meeting Sue, and it was like, man, this could be really special. So I think it was a combination of like UConn recruiting us and us kind of recruiting each other um, that really made it possible.
1: I recently listened to the call that you were on with Gino and some of your former teammates from the 2002 undefeated season. And Gino made a statement that really stood out to me. He said that if women's basketball was like men's in terms of the professional opportunities afforded to young athletes, you all never would have made it to your senior years together. And looking back on that, Do you see that as a positive that you were able to stay at UConn all four years? Or does that kind of sting in the sense that you had the talent to to leave early, but that opportunity just wasn't there?
0: Uh, For me personally, I can't speak for for everyone else. I mean, um, we just knew what the situation was. And I think as women, we understand that there's never been a thing in our mind where it's been okay, we can leave early if we do X, Y, and Z, or we can be one and done. That that wasn't the thing. And for me going to college at that point in time in my, in my life and in my career was about getting my degree. It was about being able to have a career as a pro after, but at the same time become a businesswoman understand like having a family and going into the workplace what that looked like so even though we were great athletes i think all of us my whole class we all were um we all valued and understood the importance of going to college and getting that piece of paper now things have changed and things have evolved absolutely um, but i don't think it was a, as big an issue or that it's it really stung when he said that because It was our reality. And it's why we continue to fight for women's rights, why we continue to eat, um, you know, make the playing field equal. Um, That's why we continue to fight for the pay is because you want to at some point. Yes. If there if there comes a time when. The, the salaries are right. The structure is right. The popularity, everything is right for the W. Why wouldn't somebody that has the potential to go and make a living be able to do that? Because internationally, they can right now. Right. You no, know, I look at one of my close friends, Lauren Jackson. She was able to go pro mm-hmm. um, before she came to the W.
1: Yeah, we're seeing kind of that happen in in professional women's soccer, too. American players are choosing to play overseas versus playing in the NWSL because of the contracts that they're able to sign there. So I do definitely agree with you. I think the hope is that it will come down to the athlete's decision if they want to leave college early for a lucrative contract or if they want to stay all four years. That should always be up to the athlete. But you were part of the generation right after that inaugural wave of, w, you know, when the WNBA began, how would you describe that generation and your fight to sustain and continue building the W to what it is today?
0: Yeah, you know, we, we kind of came in at a time was very unique where it was the W had all this influx and was taken off and you, you know, uh, you know all of the different, you would see them everywhere. You would see Lisa, you would see Cheryl, you would see, you know, who's got next, like we got next and all these really unbelievable commercials. And I think as the WNBA and the NBA tried to figure out the infrastructure, we came in at a time where it was like, oh, it's this young crop of talent. Like, how do we market them? How do we keep the sustainability of the league? And so I think throughout my 15 years in the WNBA, one of the things that I saw was, Um, we really needed to figure out like, How do we promote our product and where is our voice in, you know, in this sport, in this society? Um, And so now as we fast forward to where we are today, I'm happy that we went through a lot of ups and downs throughout my 15 year career. Two CBAs that I was a part of having to negotiate, learning, taking sacrifices. There's so many women in the WNBA that made multiple sacrifices so that the women that are here today are getting the contracts that they can get. Um, And that makes me proud. Um, It's really not about. um, I I forget there was a saying I I had read somewhere. It was really not about um, sometimes you plant, you plant the seeds and you never get to see the tree. Right. And that's okay. But so you do get to see the tree, you're really excited because you see the fruits of the labor and the growth that happens. And that's what it's truly about. And so younger players today will get to sit under that tree and enjoy the shade of a lot of women who have made sacrifices they believe in the future of the WNBA.
1: when you have conversations with players that are are currently playing young players young women that are are in the w now what are those conversations like do do they ever speak to you in, in great gratitude of what your generation did or how do those conversations go
0: uh, you know, they, sometimes they catch you off guard. You find younger players. Um, it's so funny. Sometimes they, they'll talk to me or they'll send me messaging. you know, it's like, Hey, OG. And I'm like, I never thought I'd be an OG. I was always a younger player that was saying that to the, the, the older players. But anyway, um, it makes what, what really makes my heart, um, just feel full Uh is watching players use their platform for something bigger than them. Right. And so not only fighting for the W, but making sure they're using their platform to continue to push um, for not only women's rights, but for, to push for anything that they believe in. I think we're at a point in time where it's no longer a thing where agents and the league and everybody else is scared for, for, players to lose fans or lose opportunities or corporate sponsorship, like having a social conscience and social responsibility is part of always has been part of our DNA. And I think it's sometimes they've tried to, you know, different people within the sport have tried to temper that a little bit because they were worried about the bottom line. And to me, the bottom line has always been on the right side, being on the right side of, of history with our sport, Um, with our society. And so that's what really brings me um, a smile is watching some of these younger players understand that and be unapologetic in their pursuit um, of that.
1: We continue to hear the statement or the thought, take politics out of sports or politics don't belong in sports. But the thing is sports and uh, professional sports specifically has always been political, especially for women's sports. And you mentioned it, you know, the WNBA from it's inaugural season has has been political and the simple fact that it's been providing opportunities to women that weren't there. So can you describe how your experience as a professional athlete can prove the exact opposite of that point, that sports and politics are very much intertwined?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things I tried to do throughout my career was um, to make sure I was educating myself. And so whatever I was talking about, whatever I was trying to bring um, to the forefront or to support uh, whatever corporations that I partner with. And I had sponsorship deals and things of that sort. Um, there was always this partnership. It was never a, I'm just signed with this company. They understood exactly who I was before we even signed on the dotted line. And so being very professional about how I handled my business was something I always prided myself on. Um, and, And people knew, like, I had my nonprofit in 2005 that I started, and it was very near and dear to my heart, and we continue to do the work. And so if you're going to be on board with me and you want me to promote, you know, your company, your business, please understand, like, this is important, so here's why I need your assistance. And so I've always tried to teach even the younger players coming up in the WNBA is to not just make everything so transactional. Make sure that you have true partnerships that even today for me, like, I, right now, I am not playing the game, but I still have partners and relationships that I've built while being a player. Mm -hmm. And so just that professional um, angle has has been very beneficial for me.
1: You played with five teams during your 15-year WNBA career, uh, the Chicago Sky being one of them. What did your time in Chicago mean to you and being able to bring some of that first-time success to the organization? Yeah.
0: So Chicago was very interesting because at the time when I played there, my husband, well, at the time it was my, my boyfriend, um, we moved there, uh, because he was working, um, at Miller Corps headquarters. And so, um, we were experiencing Chicago during the season and in the off season, um, which I got to enjoy the winter, um, for two years. And I was trying to figure out like how my life was going to adjust if we ever had kids, (laughs) <laughs> I love Chicago. I, I really did. I thought um I came there at a time also when we had younger players like Elena Deladon, um, like Epiphany Prince and mm-hmm. Um, Sylvia Fowles that were coming into their own and really trying to understand how to win, how to be professional in this league. And um, that was the first time of like really having some success and playing. And I enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed the city. I love the way the city embraced me. And so it was important for, you know, my husband and I, while we spent the time there to not only be um, involved in the basketball part of it, but to also be involved in the community. And mm-hmm. so uh, doing some different work out in the community and on the South side um, were things that we still, to this day, like if we go back, we have friends and, and organizations um, that we still work with. When you say you enjoyed Chicago's winter, did you actually enjoy the winter or was it? <laughs> I didn't say I'd enjoyed the winter. I said, I enjoyed my time in Chicago. Um, (laughs) Let me clarify myself. Uh, The winter was a different beast. Uh, I enjoyed my time in Chicago because it reminded us a lot of, I mean, we lived in Atlanta. We lived obviously in New York, Um, but we loved restaurants. So eating out was always our thing. Um, The winter was tough for me because when I got injured, it's very difficult to bundle up, (laughs) go work get a shower, get back to your house at the shower again. So that whole, like, it, it was interesting. My my Nana always talks about that hawk that comes down on yeah. the lakes. Yes. And so you turn a corner in Chicago and you, you pretty much could just have icicles running down your face.
1: <laughs> it like smacks you in the face. People always say you have not experienced a true Chicago winter, unless you've like walked backwards against the wind, transitioning back to your career, the conversation we're here to talk about, but um, following your retirement, you remained with the New York Liberty as the director of franchise development. Did you know as your retirement was approaching that you wanted to maintain this career in basketball and how were you preparing even before you retired to you know, continue a successful career off the court?
0: Yeah, so to be honest, I didn't. I had already laid the groundwork down for the media side of Great. my after sports. Um, it was Isaiah Thomas, um, who you're very familiar with from Chicago. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, lots of this city.
0: Yes, he literally during my retirement we went to my mother and he just talked to my mom like I we got to get her in the front office. She's going to be great. She's going to be. And my mom was looking at him. My mom asked me about it. I'm like, oh, I know, I know, but I I don't know if I it's something I want to do. So I sat down with him. I sat down with um, Bill Lambier, and it really just came down to you know what Isaiah said to me, which really hit home and made me think about a lot of things. Was that you know, I had this experience of not only playing in the league, covering the WNBA, covering sports. I had this business pedigree because I worked um, and was a part of the union uh, on executive committee and been through multiple CBAs. And so I had this kind of, as you say, institutional knowledge that it was like, all right, if you go to a team, how can the team be better for the players? How can we build a champion? And I said, you know what? That sounds really interesting. But when I when I got my position as director of franchise um, development, I didn't want to just focus on the basketball upside because mm-hmm. I felt like a lot of times we operate in this kind of silo where it's like basketball ops. And then there's the business side. And so right. my position was more of a hybrid. And so I was able to be on both sides of it and see how the business side connects with the basketball side um, and be that kind of conduit between the two. And that really helped, I think, my career, my position where I am now is because I have that kind of background mm-hmm. and I know how to navigate on both sides. So that was very, very um. Fruitful for me, and I and I thank Isaiah Thomas for that all the time because it made me grow not only as a as a person but also as a businesswoman as well.
1: Speaking of your position now as the VP of basketball operations with the New Orleans Pelicans, from conversations I've had with women in sport, there's this. This idea that if you're a woman, you have to work in the WNBA or whatever the women's league is. And if you're a man, then you grow to aspire to work or coach in, in the man's league. And obviously, that's very much not the case. That's not true. But I wonder for you, when did you start to imagine yourself making a transition from the WNBA to the NBA or or was it just an opportunity that presented itself um, you know, that led to this transition from the WNBA to the NBA. And second part to that question, was it a challenge for you to leave the W for the NBA or or no? Yeah. So th- to answer the first part
0: of that question, um, no, I, I wasn't working in the W with my I set on the NBA at all. Um, That wasn't even a thing in my mind. I was being groomed and prepared to eventually be a GM or, or, you know, a team president for WNBA team. Um, And what happened is, is that at the time um, MSG sold to the, the, um, the, the Brooklyn ownership group. And so there was a transition, um during that time. And as they transitioned, the opportunity wasn't available for me to continue my career as far as making that next step into potentially a GM or a president. Um, and so, you know, we just decided um, to, you know, mutually kind of part ways there. And at this time, I still was covering media and I was working for Turner and I was working for CBS. Mm-hmm. And my current boss right now, David Griffin, was working for Turner as well. And so he literally just came to me on a whim and was like, you know, as I was leaving out of the studio one night, he said, you know, if I get one of these jobs, like I'm gonna give you a call. And I was just like, Oh, okay. And then I was like, see, see you later. Um literally I get the ping from ESPN maybe a week later that he was hired with the Pelicans. And I thought that was the most hilarious thing. And I was like, was Griff serious? And lo and behold, he was very, very serious. Um, And so the opportunity just presented itself. And so a lot of times um, that's what is kind of disappointing. I have to go over all the time with people is that there was never this want or this longing in my spirit or I was, you know, angling myself to get to the NBA. It was never that. It was just it came down to opportunities presenting themselves. And I'm very, very happy and blessed to be where I am today. Um, But I do encourage and I've said this to the new um, commissioner for the WNBA, I've said it, to other WNBA teams, there needs to be more former WNBA players, not only just coaching, which they do need to be in the coaching ranks, but they need to be in front offices. And the only way that we are going to continue to grow our league is by supporting the women who have been in the league, because we have so many smart, brilliant, bright um, women that can help our league grow. Um, but we need to uh open up the pool to allow them to come in and have success. I don't believe in this whole thing that athletes, you know, former athletes can't be great in roles um, in the front office or coaching roles. Like that's one of those stereotypes that have been there on the men's side. And it's, and it's starting to become more of an issue. I think on the women's side that we get away from, Um, but we have to support our own. If we don't, then, you know, who will.
1: You, throughout your career, turned down opportunities to play overseas, and overseas, so many athletes, so many women in the W have talked about playing overseas is where they made their money. Was that challenging to turn down those opportunities, knowing that you were going to, you know, (laughs) secure the bag over there? Or how how did you mentally tell yourself, like, I got to stay here in order to... Pursue this, that, and the other, even though I could go get this bag overseas. Ooh, Lord! <laughs> I think back to it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You know what? Um, I was just prayerful at the time. Um, I have no regrets. Um, obviously, my agent probably does and <laughs> thinks so. I thought I was crazy back then. Um, a lot of times, because they tell you just go get the bag, and you'll have time. Um, You know, when you come back or later on in your career to do it. Um, And it was a struggle for me, you know, because there were times where I was paying for training and paying people to train me here and I'm not making money um, overseas, but I was making, you know, decent amount here doing television. Um, But yeah, no, you always think back a little bit and say, man. Uh, But at the same time, my strategy from when we started, I never wavered from that. It was to build a foundation so that when I stopped playing, when the ball came, when the air came out of the ball, that I had options to go in either direction. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to see happen is while some of these women are, and it's starting to happen here. I will give credit to the the, the WMBPA, to the WNBA. They're starting to recognize that there has to be programs that are teaching different skill sets to women, even if they're playing overseas or here, so that when they finish and they retire, that they're prepared to go into some of these jobs and these opportunities. Um, there's certain things basketball wise that will translate into having, giving you a skill set to be able to perform a job. But think about this, any like there are some people who go through their whole 20s that are working their way up the corporate ladder. We're working our way through like a league and we're, mm-hmm. we're getting a different learning experience, but we may not be getting the institutional knowledge of how to navigate in a corporate world or being an entrepreneur. And so I, I do see them trying to make a pivot and a change. I didn't have that back then, and mm-hmm. I value that. I value having balance so that whenever I stopped playing, that there was options for me. So that's why I made those decisions. And I would do the same thing um, if I had to do it all over again.
1: It makes complete sense. And, you know, right now there's a lot of conversations taking place, especially in the professional sports sphere of pro athletes, and that their entire identity is in the sport. And then when, when your career ends, what's next, what decision do you make? How do you identify then? where does your career take you? And I think this translates across the board, people in all different kinds of industries really invest their entire identity into what they do instead of who they are. So I wonder if you have any advice for young professionals, whether it is in the sports field and especially young women in Yes. Chasing success, but not getting caught up in your entire identity being in one specific thing.
0: Yeah. So listen, I love anybody like, I mean, people have seen me hashtag team, we grind and I'm a grinder. I love to get after it, secure your bag. I'm not telling you not to do that, but what I am telling you to do is you can secure your bag. You can be, you can be grinding out in this corporate world or in your profession, but you you also should set goals and have a plan. And the first thing you need to do is find your passion point. Like, what am I passionate about? I say this to our guys all the time. Um, I need to know what you're passionate about. So after a back-to-back, I know on that day off, that third day off, that if I ask you to do X, Y, and Z, you're going to get up, even if you're tired from it and go do it because you care about it. When you retire, you want to be doing things and using the money and the access that you have to do things that you care about. Things that that's where your legacy kind of starts, you mm-hmm. know, like people think your legacy is just all all based on your performance at work. And your legacy is based on the totality of everything of like who you are, your being, like what you talked about. And so I think I was blessed to have great mentors, you know, great family that poured that into me. So I always understood and valued that. Um, and I hope that I have you know, live my life and been in my career and being able to help people. And they see that without me having to tell them that. Um, That would be, that to me is like true legacy, leaving something where people can say, you know what, I like the way that Swin did it because at the end of the day, even when I played, like I was doing campaigns or partnering with different people that was outside of the box. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that people would say, oh, well, the guys can get this. And I would be like, well, why can't the women have that? Why can't I do a why can't if I wanted to be on the cover of like Cosmo or or if I was into fashion or I wanted to be a fashion like why? Why is there a difference in me doing it versus Russell Westbrook, you know? 100%. And so pushing the envelope and being passionate about the things you care about, um, it will lead you down a path where you can sleep at night. And that's the that's the thing you want to do. Be able to sleep at night knowing you were true to yourself and true to your craft.
1: You face multiple moments of adversity in your life and your career, you know, on the court and off. And as humans, we naturally are drawn to people's success stories and idolize and obsess over the quote unquote highlight reel. And I hate that. I think we can all learn so much from each other's challenges. And so I wonder for you, what did the adversity you faced teach you that success never could?
0: The the adversity taught me that I was stronger than I had thought. Um, Because when you have success, you feel so strong because you accomplished something. But the adversity and falling down, people, I say this to people, people don't remember you falling down. They don't remember like, what was that triggering point? They can remember like, oh, you had an injury. But what they do remember is how you got back up. Like, how did you fight? How did you get through that? Um, What did that look like? That to me was what I feel like I've learned and and, and grown the most is in my darkest of times, being able to get back up and knowing you have the strength and the ability to do that
1: and still be able to accomplish great things like that's that's the power and the beauty in it. You were recently announced as a nominee for the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame among a list of stars, including former teammate Lauren Jackson. Does the nomination carry much weight, or do you put it in the back of your mind unless you're actually inducted? How does how do you uh, I don't know think about this?
0: Yeah, you know it's it's one of those things. I went through um, through through it last year, and right. I realized you're so excited about being nominated, um, and you're you're thankful. Like I'm so thankful and blessed because that was never the goal, um, as a young skinny kid coming out of a key sport. Um, and you see how excited people are for you and you realize your family, your friends, your colleagues, like everybody wants this to happen for you. And so this time around, it's it's very, I've I've taken a different approach where I'm at peace with whatever happens. I'm blessed that I would even be nominated. Um, I'm super excited that Lauren is right there because um, I've had some of the best times of of my WBA career um, with her but you just wait in here. It's like one of those things. Um, and I think even if my name gets called and I am going to be inducted into, you know, the Naismith Hall of Fame, um, the first step for me is being inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, so to get that nomination, to to get that nod was amazing. Um, this would be the second part of that. And I think it just brings everything full circle and it lets young kids, girls or boys understand that. It doesn't matter, you know, where you come from, you know, uh, it's just really about the path that you choose in a journey. And I've had a really humble journey. And so I think for everybody that has supported my career, that has embraced me, um, that's pushed me out of my comfort zone, it would be a celebration that we'll all enjoy and we need a little bit of celebrating and love in 2021 don't you think
1: <laughs> man don't we i think that's the truest thing we could we could say on this during this conversation 2021 we got to bring in the joy the love this the success and it's not a matter of if but rather when so your fans your family we will be celebrating that soon the orange hoodie has become such an iconic statement piece and credit goes to the women in the league and obviously Kobe Bryant and you know all the men and women off the court who every time they wear this jersey are posting about it on social media blasting it out and just you know hyping it up as it deserves to be hyped up how do you think social media has played into the WNBA's growth and contributed also to an accountability factor for league execs, investors, media companies, um, you know, fans can directly say, why isn't this game broadcast nationally? Like there's no hiding anymore. And social media, I think, has a, has created that dynamic.
0: Yeah, I think for me, I think the biggest thing is, you know, early on in my career, I mean, when social media was just even kind of starting and we were on a cusp of it kind of taking off, um, I used to always have these internal fights and I used to have conversations with, you know, friends of mine on the NBA side because they always supported us. Like there's this whole idea that Kobe, you know, just started supporting the WNBA um, once he had daughters. And I'm like, no, no, like that's not the case. Like Kobe supported you go back to Chauncey Billups, like there's so many different people Um you know, that the guys we play USA basketball with that support it. And so there was the moment with the great, I mean, with the the orange hoodie, sorry. And even though it was conceived, I think one of the marketers, uh, Ebony, with the WNBA, um, even though the strategy was in place to get these hoodies out there, Social media and the accountability of people seeing that, yes, superstars, entertainers, WNBA players, everybody wears this hoodie and it symbolized the same thing. That was the power in the hoodie, you know, and that is what it was. This, this idea that we are all equal and I support my brother and my sister and it's a cool piece to have. Mm -hmm. Um, That to me is, is what I wanted 10 years ago, 15 years ago in the W and it, it never got there because there would still be those guys or, you know, those guys who think they're better than WNBA players who've never picked up a ball just because they're men. Right. And so I think this iconic orange hoodie and what it symbolized was no, these women are great. We support them, but we support women across the board. It was bigger than just the W players. And that's what I took from it. And that's why, you know, when our guys were in the bubble, when I'm getting a call, like, when are our hoodies getting here? Like, we were like, that excited me because they knew it was bigger than just them.
1: This year has obviously been unprecedented. There's been so many challenges. And I try not to, you know, with every question I ask, make it sound like, sports is is the most important of the challenges we have face there's obviously been so many more significant things than the changes that have taken place in professional sports but for you specifically how has this year changed your your work dynamic and how have you adjusted to those changes
0: yeah um I've had to it's been a lot um I think how I've adjusted is with patience, um, with the great supporting village around me. And um, I think working with some amazing colleagues, I think we all just have this kind of personality where we're in this together. And so it makes it easier to come into work. It makes it easier to. You know, navigate and adjust from a going into a bubble to coming out and starting a season just like that, and going to the draft process and not having a summer league. And I mean, there's all these negatives that you could have been like, "This is not going to happen. This is not going to. Ha- this is not going to work." But our optimism and in, in our workplace and in you know us coming together as a collective here with here in New Orleans is what really kind of got me through. And I mean. For most of 2020, people didn't even know that I was pregnant. Um, and so being pregnant and going through that and in my mind thinking, you know what, I know it's a pandemic. I know everyone has high stress level, but I still can perform and do my job. And if it comes a time where I can't, I have great colleagues and a boss around me that's very supportive of that. But, you know, I still was in here grinding it out like or with our guys, you know, if we have 12 hour days, if we're doing draft, like I think that support. Um, as a collective, really, really, really helped me. And so now as I, you know, prepare to, you know, give birth, I feel very confident because we're in a great space um, as an organization um, to continue to get through the season.
1: Definitely. That's a great transition to my last question for you. You know, there's this idea that somehow motherhood takes part of our ability to be working women. And I think that just, we need to get rid of that idea. So I want to ask you, how has being a mother made you better at your job, made you a better woman in this industry? I think one of the things is understanding that,
0: you know, my son and my kids will be exposed to this sport and, One of the reasons I came into the sport was to not only work with great colleagues, but to help our players become the men that they want to become on the court, off the court. Um, And so the more that, you know, I feel like I'm helping them, they're also helping me because I'm learning certain things that I can use even as a mom and me walking around, you know, here in our weight room and on the court 37 weeks pregnant and them seeing a pregnant woman that's standing there and we're having conversations and they're talking to me about just like life and you know birth and you know what sneakers I have on today those are the interactions they need to have like why shouldn't they have that interaction because it's in a gym and we're they're you know they're preparing for a job in sports For so many years, people thought, oh, we have to keep women out of these spaces because we need our guys to focus on one thing. And it's like, no, you need to expose your guys to more things because it makes them more well-rounded. And so um, besides the fact of them, you know, telling me that they don't want my water to break at a game, I think (laughs) we're doing great over here.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And last thing I've been asking every guest this: what is your hope for the future of women in sports? My hope
0: for the future of women in sports is that um, we will continue to use our platform to change um, the world as a whole. But I also would hope the future for women in sports is that more women support women. I think that's where we have to be. And the day that we unite and understand the strength in numbers from our corporate women to our teachers, to our doctors, to every woman that's walking on this earth, if you are supporting women in sports, you're supporting yourself because we're all on the same playing field. Um, And that to me is uh, what we can do to really kind of change the narrative about women and in sports.
1: What a beautiful, powerful statement to end on, Swin. Thank you so much for this time that you've given us today. Good luck the rest of this season and, and congratulations on welcoming new life into the world. We send you nothing but love from Equal Play and the Sun-Times.